read all the way through the Bible. I hope you have. I have, but not a hundred times. That's pretty impressive. But uh, for George Mueller, clearly reading the Bible was a priority for him. In fact, he said, I look upon it as a lost day when I have not had a good time over the Word of God. I hope you feel that way about your own time with reading God's Word. And, and reading it a hundred times, that's very impressive, no doubt about that. But there's no magical number a hundred times. There's no command to read through the whole Bible. But but it highlights to me, it highlights the priority that George Mueller gave to his time with God. He was also known as a man of intense and faithful prayer. That was a big part of his reputation. But, but one of the things that makes him a spiritual hero to me is not so much the, the discipline that he put into his relationship with God. That's certainly part of it. But the other part is the way that his life was shaped by these priorities. George was a pastor and he ran a series of orphanages, caring for over 10,000 orphans in the course of his ministry. He also published a variety of study materials and used that money to fund other ministries. So his priorities of, of reading the Bible, of prayer, had a profound impact on the way he chose to live, how he organized his time, how he lived his life. He goes on to talk about his priorities in this way. Uh, friends often say, George says, I have so much to do, so many people to see, I can't find time for Scripture study. Perhaps there are not many who have more to do than I, he says. For more than half a century, I've never known one day when I did not have more business than I could get through. For four years, I've had annually about 30,000 letters to write, and most of these have passed through my own hands. Then as a pastor of a church with 1,200 believers, great has been my care. Besides, I've had charge of five immense orphanages. Also, at my publishing depot, the printing and circulating of millions of tracts, books, and Bibles. But I've always made it a rule never to begin work until I have had a good season with God and His Word. The blessing I have received has been wonderful. So his life was shaped. His entire identity was formed by his prioritizing a relationship with Jesus. And that's the desire I have for my own life. I believe that's the desire that God has for your life as well. And as we continue our study in Matthew, we're going to see uh, an example from the Scriptures of a person who's very much marked by his priorities. Let's read Matthew chapter 3 together and learn from the example of John the Baptist. This is Matthew 3. We're going to start in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins." So this chapter describes the identity of John, the message of John, and the response to John. You could follow along in your sermon notes, but we're going to begin with the identity of John. This passage gives us some important information about the identity of John. Matthew says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. One of the first things we learn about John is his location. That's part of his identity. He, he set up camp, as it were, in the wilderness of Judea. This is a, a dry, desolate isolated place, away from everything, away from the trappings of Jerusalem. 
John was apparently situated near the Jordan River because he's baptizing people there. In fact, that's why he's John the Baptist, not because he's the founder of the Baptist Church or not because he's the son of Mr. and Mrs. Baptist, but he's, he's given that nickname because of the focus of his ministry. He's, he's calling the people of Israel to come to repent and to demonstrate that repentance through baptism. We're going to talk more about that in a bit, but for now, the first thing I want us to notice about John's identity is his location. He went out away from Jerusalem away from the establishment of his day in order to fulfill his purpose and his mission. His entire identity is very specifically uh, listed for us here for a couple of reasons. First, because it's a fulfillment of prophecy, like this passage tells us, but secondly, so that he could communicate something very specific and very profound to the people of Israel at that time. That's one of the things I want us to understand about the identity of John, the location where he ministers is very significant. Now, you may know that in the same area where John was ministering, there was a group called the Essenes, Essenes, this group of religious people who lived outside of Jerusalem, out in the wilderness area. Uh, these are the people who were responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, they were, the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in caves near Qumran, which is in the same area, kind of the headquarters for this group. And in this time, in this time before Jesus began His public ministry, there was actually a lot of distinct groups in Israel. You probably know about the Pharisees, right, this group that was fiercely devoted to moral behavior, so focused on the, the outward life, living in a way that honored God, so much so that they created a whole set of rules that you couldn't break just so that you were extra careful not to break God's rules. Jesus, of course, had a lot of interactions with the Pharisees, and, and maybe you know a bit about the Sadducees, this other group. They were a little less rigid than the Pharisees, more liberal, like we might describe in, in today's terms. And they were a lot more willing to play politics, to get in good with the Romans in order to advance their agenda. But there were also other groups. There were the Zealots, this group of people who were followers of God, but really their specific emphasis was on shedding the political influence of Rome. They were kind of ultra-conservatives of their time. Their tactics were often violent, but at the heart of their hope was that the Messiah would come and would throw off the shackles of Roman oppression. They were focused on a, on a political Messiah. You know, interestingly, at least one of Jesus' disciples was a zealot. He's introduced to Simon the Zealot, again, not because he's the son of Mr. and Mrs. Zealot, but he was one of these guys. So a lot of different groups of Israel at this time, all of them waiting for a Messiah, all of them looking for hope, uh, not unlike today, except our modern groups are more political than religious, looking for hope in different ways, but, but a lot of diverse people, all of us looking for hope, looking for rescue, and that's very much the climate that Jesus came into a lot of diverse groups in Judaism, each of them looking for a Messiah who would meet their uh, needs, one whose kingdom would accomplish the things that they wanted. And I think this is one of the reasons why over and over in the Gospels, as Jesus is revealing Himself to people, He tells them, don't say anything. Like, have you ever noticed that, right? He, he'll heal a person and He'll say, don't, don't tell anybody about this. Well, I think part of the reason is because there's so many preconceived notions about what the Messiah would do, what He would be like. Jesus knows that if word gets out too quickly about him, then one of these groups is going to try to take advantage, co-opt his mission, but none of them could realize what an upside-down kingdom he was coming to establish. No one understood that Jesus' own priorities, his own obedience to God was so much different than the preconceived ideas they had. And in the midst of all this climate, here's John the Baptist. As I said, a lot of people want to associate him with one of these groups, these, these Essenes, this desert community this group that, that really chose to separate themselves, a lot like 
how John did, but they, they chose to remove themselves from society. Kind of like the, the Amish today or like a monk, these Essenes assumed that the best way to grow in holiness was to, to separate themselves from everything else. In reality, there's no proof either way if John was a part of this group or not. He might have been, but my contention is that he was not associated with them. I mention him because it highlights part of John's identity and has a powerful lesson for us. When it comes to his location, he was outside Jerusalem, literally and also figuratively. He was out, away from the, the, the crowds, but also away from the establishment. And yet, I don't think he was outside in the same way that these Essenes, this separated group was. See, for them, they, they went outside to get away from other groups, to avoid being defiled by people who might, uh, might interact with them. They were separated so that they could stay separate. But for John, it's different. He goes out. He goes out of Jerusalem, away from the, the temple, the center of worship. He goes out of the community not to separate himself. He goes out in order to draw others out, in order to focus people away from just their own preferences, their own preconceptions. He goes out to help people focus their priorities on Jesus, the true Messiah, not these made-up Messiah substitutes that everyone was looking for. So John spends his time leveling the playing field. He specifically avoids association with these subgroups, these radical expressions of Judaism. He wants to be inclusive, making it possible for all people to come to the real Jesus, the true Messiah and King. So you remember John, he's the son of a priest. His father, Zechariah, got word that John was going to be born while he was serving in the temple. You can read about that in, in Luke 1. But as the son of a priest, John, he could have followed in his father's footsteps, but he intentionally doesn't do that. He goes outside the city, outside the temple, outside the system in order to minister. He shapes his ministry around opening all people's hearts to the reality of Jesus, right? And one of the things that makes me think of right away is our own vision here at Trinity. We've got this, this vision to reach 500 families over the next five years. That's a big goal. It's a God-sized vision, and it's not going to happen if we just sit and stay here. It's going to take ministry, just like John, going out, outside of this room in order to connect, to share the gospel with those who are in our valley. We're going to have to take a lesson from John the Baptist and his ministry, not waiting for people to come to us, but going out prioritizing our own lives around the advance of the gospel, making space in our lives for God to do His work through us. So John's location, that's a key part of his identity. There's other parts of his identity that are mentioned in this passage. His identity is described through his clothing and his, uh, shall we say, unusual diet, right? There's a lot of diet trends rolling around these days, thankfully. No one's tried to bring back the John the Baptist diet to us, right? Uh, and Matthew introduces John. He tells us, verse 4, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So John's appearance is part of his identity we can learn from. It's notable for a couple of reasons. First, it's notable because there's not very many places in the Scripture where the authors of Scripture take time to mention clothing. Right? Like most of the people in the Bible, there's no mention of the clothing they wore, but, but here we get this detailed description of what John wore and of what he ate. And of course, that's on purpose. It's on purpose that Matthew would take the time to tell us, but it's also on purpose John's choice of outfit is intentional. His, his unusual garments are not just unusual to us, to modern readers, but they would have been unusual in his time too. See, John's very intentionally dressed in the style of Elijah the prophet. Elijah, this Old Testament prophet, you can read about him in the book of 1 Kings. He was a, a powerful prophet whose ministry 
was to turn the hearts of the people of God away from false idols and towards the one true God. And just like so many of us, the people of Elijah's time, they had misplaced priorities. And Elijah was called to recenter them on God. And John understands that the, God, the, the call that God put on his life, his ministry, is very much the same as Elijah's. John's been given this call to go and to preach and to baptize and to help turn the people of God back to the one true God, to prepare the people for the coming of King Jesus. So John purposefully aligns himself with Elijah, and he does it, and Matthew points it out to us in a very visual, very outward way, his appearance. John's letting other people know just by looking at him that he's coming in the same manner, in the same spirit as Elijah. His very appearance lets everybody know that this is no ordinary individual. He's unique. He's filling a unique role, and his ministry is, is worth paying attention to. And now his, his diet indicates that he's poor, right? Like nobody goes out to a restaurant and orders locusts and honey, right? Mom, it's my birthday. Will you make me your locusts and honey for dinner? No, this is the diet of poor people. And Matthew mentions it to give us a clue to John's identity. John is aligning himself with the lowest of the low. Again, he's the son of a priest. He's a person who's born into established society, but he he sets that aside. He sets aside those rights and privileges in order to serve his mission and his purpose. He aligns himself with the lowest of the low, the most needy, in order to highlight that we're all needy. We're all in need of redemption from Christ. So right away, we're introduced to John, this this larger-than-life character, this wild-looking person who ministers outside the system in order to demonstrate that we're all equal as we come to God through Jesus. This person who aligns himself with those most in need to demonstrate that all of us have need. And this person who aligns himself with the powerful prophet Elijah so that his ministry cannot be ignored. And it's that connection to Elijah, this one final piece of John's identity. Matthew tells us one more detail about his identity by pointing us to this prophecy from the Old Testament. Look at the passage with me again, verse 3. But this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is a passage from Isaiah. And it's worth noting that all four gospel writers attribute this passage in Isaiah to John the Baptist as this forerunner of Christ. They all understand that John is the fulfillment of this prophetic word that was written hundreds of years earlier. In the understanding of the gospel writers, John is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And there's a couple of significant things I want us to make note of here. First, notice that in this prophecy in Isaiah, the the prophet Isaiah tells us there's this voice in the wilderness. And that voice is crying out a message. The message says, prepare the way of the Lord. In the Old Testament, that's, that's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the name of God, Yahweh, the name that God gives Himself. So this messenger that Isaiah is talking about is calling out for the people to prepare the way for Yahweh. See, in the understanding of Isaiah, God Himself was coming, and the people were to prepare their hearts for Him. And yet, to a person, all four of these gospel writers each affirm that John the Baptist is that one who cries out with this message, prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way for God. And yet the person who comes, the one they're preparing for, is Jesus. So in this passage, Jesus is very clearly connected to God Himself. The connection between Yahweh of the Old Testament and and Jesus as the New Testament fulfillment of that prophecy, it's unmistakable, right? Which again, is amazing because you remember John the Baptist and Jesus, they're cousins. John knew about Jesus from birth, 
Now, I don't think they spent a lot of time together as children. They lived far apart from each other, and gas was even more expensive then than it is now. I don't think they traveled very much, but, but John certainly knew about Jesus. And yet he has no problems, and Matthew, the author, has no problem drawing a thick, dark line between Jesus and the one true God. We're going to talk more in a couple of weeks about the Trinity, but I want us to notice right in this prophecy, this powerful connection between Jesus and God, there's no confusing his identity even for a person who knew Jesus as a young child. One last piece of John's identity is simply this. His identity is his mission. His identity is his mission. His identity is to be the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He knows that God's role for him is to prepare the way for Jesus to come and do his work. John knows that his role is to, to make his paths straight. His entire identity, where he lives, how he dresses, what he eats, what he says, what he does, all of it is designed to carry out God's purpose for his life. In fact, in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist says the very powerful statement as he, he sees Jesus. He says, he, talking about Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. So right away, looking at John's identity, we could be challenged in our own lives. Where do you need to decrease? Focusing less on yourself so that Jesus can work through you? What priorities need to shift in your life so that your identity can match your mission, your mission to be a disciple maker, a person who advances the gospel with your whole life? John sacrificed everything to live a life on mission for God. George Mueller, in the same way, he gave up untold amounts of money and prestige to live out his calling from God. He gave away almost everything he took in. Where do you and I need to decrease so that Jesus can increase in our lives? Where do we need to go outside? In other words, where do we need to, to let go of our own preferences in order to match our identity to Jesus? Not trying to make Jesus fit in our own preconceived box, but, but changing our life to match His. What needs to change in your life so that you can go out and reach others who are in need of the gospel? And where are those areas of your life where your appearance and your inward life don't match up. There's another passage in the Old Testament that talks about false prophets who, who dress like Elijah, trying to make themselves look the part, but their lives don't match up. Is that us? Do we look like good Christians who have everything together, but our inner life doesn't tell the same story? Just looking at the identity of John the Baptist gives us powerful ways to assess our own spiritual lives, our own identity as followers of Jesus. Are we completely sold out to Him, or are we trying to hold on to our own comfort and ease and just serve Jesus in our spare time? For John, his whole identity was his mission. Can the same thing be said about us? So there's things that we can learn from John's identity. If you follow along in your notes, you'll see the passage also teaches us about John's message. Look at the passage again, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is his message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's break this down a little bit. Just a one-sentence message with some very important ideas here. Obviously, one key idea is repent. What does that mean for us, repent? It's this, this Bible word. We don't use it in our culture much. Uh, in fact, in our culture today, that word repentance might need to come with a trigger warning, right? It might be that our culture has, has moved on from this idea. These days, if somebody makes a mistake or somebody screws up, then 
and social media trolls mercilessly punish a person until they apologize, but that's not good enough. That person's still shamed forever, just cancel culture, right? But here, it's repentance that's at the core of John the Baptist's message. His whole life, essentially, boils down to this one message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If only all sermons were that short, right? But this is an idea worth spending some time on, and we need to start by understanding this idea of repentance. Uh, of course, John the Baptist didn't speak English. Our Bible's a translation. The Gospels were originally written in Greek, and this Greek word that we translate repent, it's actually a compound word. It's, it's two words together, the two words that literally mean to think after. So another way we might say it in, in modern language would be to think again. Like when a person says or does something and you see that what they've done is wrong, you say, hmm, think again. Oh, that's not right. Or you're about to say or do something unwise or dangerous, but you stop and you, you think again. That's the idea. Repentance means you're, you're changing the way you think. In fact, you often hear people say, oh, this word translated repent, it means to change your mind, changing your mind. You had a mind to do this or to live this way, but you stop, you think again. Change your mind and you do something else instead. It's changing the way you live. That's a key idea behind this, this one-sentence sermon. Think again. And we say changing your mind. We don't just mean, oh, I'm going to have the soup instead of the salad for lunch. It's beyond that. It's, it's deeper fundamental change. And I say that because there's another aspect of what this word means. It means to think again. It means to change your mind. But it also comes with this idea of feeling remorse, feeling deep sadness. So, so the idea of repentance is that you feel some, some sorrow, some remorse, some regret, and as a result of that, you change. That feeling makes you think again, makes you change your mind, and then that change shows up in your actions. Changing your mind first, and then the rest of you follows after that. Changing your actions and your attitudes as well. So that's the basic idea of repentance. We could sum it up by saying, think again, and that rethinking shows up in our lives. So, managed to take that one-sentence sermon, turn it into a lengthy explanation, but there's plenty more to unpack, so don't worry. Uh, the next part of what John says is equally important. He, he, look at his sermon again. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, we talked about repentance, and here John gives us a reason to repent. We're to repent for this reason. Remember, John's singular focus is, is preparing, preparing the way for people to understand and embrace Jesus, he's, he's prioritized his entire life around this mission. He's giving people just like us, people who have sinned, people who have made mistakes, people who have prioritized their lives in all the wrong ways, he gives us some good news. And the first part of that good news is repentance. He wants us to stop and think again about sin, about our own contribution to all the problems of the world. And he goes on to tell us why we should turn away from sin. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this idea of kingdom is another Bible idea that our culture has lost sight of. Like, what does it even mean, kingdom? Uh, the easiest way I can think to explain it is to think about a real king, an earthly king. There's not very many kings in our world today, but there are some. And think about a king. Every, everything in his kingdom is, is the things that are under his rule, under his authority. So a real-life example is the king of Sweden. You maybe didn't even know Sweden has a king, but he, he rules over Sweden, a country, right? He, uh, he rules over the people of Sweden. He gets a discount at Ikea, all those things. But he doesn't rule over America, right? That's not his kingdom. Well, when we're talking about the kingdom of God, we have to realize this is a lot bigger than Sweden. It's a lot bigger than any earthly kingdom. God's kingdom is wherever God rules, which is all the heavens and all the earth, everywhere. 
So everywhere that God's influence is felt, that's God's kingdom. And that means it's not just a physical kingdom, but it's also spiritual. So God's kingdom can be present in a physical world, like wherever there's justice being done or, or love being shown to people who need it. But, but the kingdom of God can also be spiritual, unseen, happening in our hearts. So, so when a relationship we have is mended or when we set aside our own rights for the sake of others, that's the kingdom of God also at work. So the kingdom is wherever God rules. If we allow Him to rule in our own hearts, then that's the kingdom of God at work. So this message from John is really good news, good news because it gives us a way to think again, not just turning away from sin, but it gives us something to turn towards. We could begin to live in a way that the kingdom comes to life in our hearts, in our minds. We can begin to live in a way that Jesus becomes the king over our lives. So things like joy and peace, love for other people become central pieces of our lives. These things begin to define our identity the way John's identity was defined by God's work in him. These things that, that come from God and they're the sign that God is ruling in us. So John's message tells us not only is there a way for us to, to set down the regrets, the mistakes that we've made, not only can we turn away from sin, reprioritizing our life, but even more than that, we can turn towards God. We can turn towards something that is good and true and right and just and peaceful, the kingdom of God. So how do we do that? That's where the final part of John's message comes in. The last part of his message tells us the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. Other Bible translations say the king has come near. This is good news, right? That this kingdom, this amazing glorious kingdom is at hand. It's right here. Now, if you're like me, I almost always have a cup of coffee close at hand. And if I could get access to the kingdom, all the, the joys and the blessings of that as easily as I can lay my hands on a cup of coffee, that's pretty amazing. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is at hand. Well, how do we grab a hold of this kingdom? How do we embrace it so it can start to work in our lives? How do we move from a life of regret, a life of misplaced priorities, to a life of peace and joy? John the Baptist tells us the kingdom is at hand because the king is at hand. John's preparing the way not just for a, a spiritual kingdom, but he's preparing the way for King Jesus. And for us, the way we grab a hold of this kingdom is by grabbing a hold of Jesus. When we embrace what it means to follow Jesus, the way we do that, the way we invite Jesus to, to come into our lives, is just what John's talking about here. John's purpose is to prepare the way for Jesus. His call is for you and I to prepare our hearts to let Jesus come and have His way in our lives. And the way we do that is this repentance, turning away from sin, turning towards God, grabbing a hold of the King and giving Him free reign over our lives, giving Him the freedom to rule and reign in our hearts, to change our priorities, to change our identity. One more key part of this passage. We've talked about the identity of John, how we can learn from his priorities. We talked about this message of John, how we can grab a hold of the reality of the kingdom of God because Jesus has come. And the final element of this passage I want us to learn from is the response to John. Look at the end of the passage, verse 5. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing 
or sin? So Matthew records the identity, the message, and here we see the response to John. People came from Jerusalem, from all the surrounding regions to be baptized by John. And one thing that's really significant about this response is how unusual it was. And what I mean by that is that baptism at this time was not very common. There were some baptisms, but they were done for, for different reasons generally than what John the Baptist has in mind. They had baptisms for, for ritual cleansing, like for priests and that sort of a thing, but it was not a widespread practice, certainly not as widespread as this passage indicates. It tells us people from Jerusalem and all Judea came out to be baptized by John. So this is an unusual response to John's message in his ministry. Probably the most common form of baptism at this time something the Jews had as part of a procedure for if a Gentile wanted to convert or wanted to become a Jew. So in a case where a person who wasn't born a Jew wanted to convert, they had a process for that, and as part of that process, they would be baptized. But here's John, he's preaching this message, and the response is that everyone comes out to be baptized, all kinds of people from all these different groups that were swirling around Jerusalem looking for a Messiah to fill their hope. That's what's so amazing about this response to John's message. John's not just calling dirty old Gentiles to come and be baptized. He's calling everybody to come and be baptized. If you keep reading in this passage, even the Pharisees are coming out to be baptized. These guys who didn't think they had done anything wrong, didn't think they had anything to repent about. So one of the big things we see with this response, one of the things John does is he levels the playing field. John tells everyone, we're all equal. We all have sin. We all need to repent. His ministry is to prepare everyone for the coming of the Lord, King Jesus. We're all equal in our need to repent and to reprioritize our lives. And I think that alone is a good and challenging thing for us to think about. Do we consider ourselves a person who needs to repent? Repentance, we tend to think it's just for unsaved people, but John says it's for everyone, for all of us. And one of the key responses to John's ministry is that all kinds of people should be willing to heed that call. Repent. Prepare your own heart for what Jesus wants to do in you. Confess those things that stand in the way of fully embracing the life that Jesus has for you. I mean, every one of us has misplaced priorities. All of us have things that are standing in the way of us having a thriving relationship with Jesus. And we think that the answer is just to, to try harder, but no. The answer is not to, to grit it out, to work it out, and to figure out if we just work hard enough on our priorities, we'll, go, we'll settle down and really get going on with Jesus. But no, the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to work. We don't have to try. We don't have to strive. The good news of the gospel is all God calls us to do is repent, to turn away from sin and to turn towards Jesus, putting our faith in Him, trusting in Him. He's done all the work on our behalf. The kingdom is within our grasp. There's a, an old hymn that says, When you turn your eyes on Jesus, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of His glory and His grace. When we align ourselves to Jesus, we get a new identity, a new purpose for our lives, a new set of priorities. When we align ourselves to Jesus, we've prepared our hearts for Him to come and establish His kingdom in us and through us. One final lesson we can learn from the response to John's ministry is what a privilege it is to prepare the way. What a privileged calling that all of us have to be able to prepare others to receive Christ. This ministry that John has, it could be the same ministry that you and I have. 
Again, I think about our vision as a church to reach all these families over the next five years. That's a vision that's going to involve each and every one of us, all of us investing our time in other people, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, the people closest to us, investing our lives for their sake, ordering our very identities around the priorities of Jesus. And as we do that, we're going to find joy and ultimate fulfillment because it's God doing the work. All we do is prepare. All we can do is make a straight path. He has the job of coming and changing minds and changing hearts. John the Baptist, his very name is his mission. He's known for what he did, how he prioritized his life, preparing the way for other people. George Mueller, he's known for his devotion to prayer and the Word and and letting God love through him, impacting thousands of people. What are you and I going to be known for? Are we willing to let our own identity and our message point people to the reality of the kingdom? Let's pray. God, we want to be people who are uh, living for you. We want to be people who are uh, fully bought in to what you're doing in our lives and what you want to do with our lives. And uh, we know there are countless uh, competing priorities that, uh, that fill our time, that fill our mental energy, that, that distract us from the truth of who you are and what you want to do in us. And, and so we want to repent from those times when we, we choose to uh, uh, turn away, we choose to, to, to follow the path of sin in different ways and distractions. Lord, we want to be focused on you. And as a church, we want to be uh, willing to, to get up and go and, and minister to this valley in a way that is uh, sold out to the way that you want to live for us. We want to be people who are uh, just desperately following the path that you have for us and, and preparing other people for, for what you want to do. And so we ask that you would give us the strength to do that, give us the focus, uh, uh, reveal in us those things that stand in the way of us having uh, just a thriving relationship with you. We could be one of these spiritual heroes. We could be these people. They're not special people. They're just people who are bought into you, and we want to be people like that. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.